Well, hi there, folks. Fred Reno here, and welcome back to another episode of the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast number 38. This is the second of two episodes profiling Afton Mountain Vineyards. Today, I interview Damien Blanchon, the winemaker and vineyard manager at Afton Mountain Vineyards. Damien was born and raised in the south of France, and his family has roots in the region of Beaujolais Village. It was therefore fitting that I interviewed him as we enjoyed a bottle of Burgundy 2017 Merceau. Damien has a very exciting, innovative approach to vineyard management, which he believes helps him produce better quality grapes and resultingly wine that is expressive of its terroir. Take a listen. Damien, welcome to my podcast and thank you for coming here. Well, thank you for having me, Fred. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, as I always tell everybody, I started in the beginning. What's your story? You grew up in Beaujolais. That's a, that's really intriguing to me. Talk to me about that. So, yeah, actually, I was born in Paris uh, with uh, my mom and my dad and, and my family. My mother's families are all from uh, Burgundy area, from Beaujolais village area, close to Vaux en Beaujolais, Le Perrion. So I was going over there always, like vacation, weekends. And uh, and after my, my parents' um, divorce, but anyway, my, my, my father went back in south of France. And when I was 12 years old, I knew already that the Paris area situation was not going to be for me. So I moved with my dad in south of France and grew up in an area in Perpignan, but going to see my grandparents, my cousin, all my family in Beaujolais all the time, basically. So I was into that uh, wine thing in Beaujolais and in south of France, and that's why I think... Uh, so you were destined from the beginning to get... Be a winemaker and get in the wine business then. Well, with my grandfather, that was his job, and my uncle too. So that they had a winery. So I was really early on into that thing, and I was really the only one that was always interested by that. Like that early on, when I was eight years old, they always remember that my family tell me like I knew already that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to drive a tractor in the vines, and that was my motivation at eight years old. And I never really. Change of that. That's the only thing I ever done. Like even little job when I was young, working in vineyard wineries. That's the only thing I've done. Did you go to school eventually? And yeah, get a degree and everything. So I went to school early on. I choose because I knew I wanted to do that. I went to agricultural school when I was fourteen years old, and started to study agricultural in general with uh, vegetal production. So very based on like everything to grow outside. So it was very general. And after with the time, I specialized in viticulture onology and did my BTS viticulture onology in Carcassonne. But from 14 to 21, even if it was regular school, it was all with an access on agriculture and vegetal production. And uh, so my uh, high school was in the middle of vines and cherry trees and, and uh, fruit trees. Oh, and, wow. And I was in boarding school when I was 14 up to my end of my studies. What prompted you to come to uh, the U.S.? So when I finished my BTS Viticulture Enology, my our teacher always talked to, like, it would be good if you go to do this job, to go see somewhere else, to have more experience in a, in a, in vineyards, but not only where you grew up or what you're familiar with. And one time my English teacher always told me, like, if you guys want to sell wine, you're going to have to use English no matter what. That's going to be the first language you want to use. So I was like, well, why not trying to do a, an internship somewhere where I can have a better English at the end of it? 
and something new. So there is an organization in France that are sending students in the world for agricultural internship. And okay. There is Mathieu Fino actually at the time that was working as a consultant with the Old House Vineyard in Culpeper and he was talking to the owner and be like, you should bring a French guy here for to do the internship. So he posted an announce in France at this agricultural organization and I saw that and I was like, well, I would be interested in going there. And that's how I came up to Well, how senior. serendipitous that you had a fellow countryman in Matthew Finau <laughs> to come over here and interview with. Yeah, well, that's the thing. We interviewed on the phone. He was here and I was in France and we didn't know each other. And after he, he really pushed me to come here and say, it's basically very new industries. There's lots of things to do. You will be in charge already of the vineyard and making the wine already at 21 years old. Some experience that in France is really hard to get if you don't work with your family right away. Well, interestingly enough, wasn't he at Afton Mountain or had he just left Afton Mountain? So he just left Afton, Afton Mountain when I arrived. He was there from 2003 to 2005, I think. And so then that's when he went to King Family. Well, he went at King Family, I think, after in 2008. He was at Potomac Point. A little bit. He was doing a lot of things around. We actually lived together for a while in Culpeper because he was working in Northern Virginia and down there. So he was traveling a lot at the time. So you were at Old House for about five years? Then? Yeah, for five years. Yeah, yeah. How much property uh, so acres did they we have? We had 25 acres of vines over there and we were producing everything on site, basically. So it was a good challenge, I have to say, because especially Culpeper, it's a uh, compared to Charlottesville, it's a little bit more flat land, uh, so not altitude, not the topography, so we don't have the, a good effect of the terroir, let's say. Right. It's a little bit harder to do, but it was a good challenge, and I learned a lot, and the owners are, were so nice to really let me do the thing over there. And so it was a really good experience for five years. How did the folks at Afton Mountain contact you? How did that Come so, so when Tony and Elizabeth um, bought after Mountain Vineyard in 2009, they were looking to maybe build the pavilion. And at the time at Old House, we had built one of those uh, open pavilion outside to, to do that. So they wanted to check this out. And I was already a friend with Robbie that was working at Afton that his parents used to own after Mountain Vineyard. So even when Tony and Elizabeth bought the winery, I was very familiar with Afton and with the people working there. So... That's why they said, oh, go check with where Damien walks. They have a pavilion, and mm -hmm. they wanted to check around. So they came, and we, we talked. We checked the vines. We had some tasting of the wines and things like that, and they left like this. And after a couple of months later, when their winemaker left, they contacted me and asked me if I wanted to come work for them. That's how we Did you bring your I, – I was fascinated by reading about your practice of agricultural mm -hmm in the vineyard and how you treat the vines with herbal remedies and natural types of approaches to agriculture. Did you bring that with you from Old House to Afton, or is that something you developed when you were at Afton Mountain? So actually when I was at Old House Vineyard, I was not doing so much of those techniques. Okay. Uh, because when you come in Virginia, the Virginia weather is very challenging. Like, you know, so for me it was a whole new thing. So towards the spray, I was more safe. Uh, tried to make sure I was not going to develop disease and I was developing my knowledge about the weather and the area. So I didn't really push that. It's really when I came to Afton when I realized the terroir and the possibilities that we could do here that 
I develop more of those techniques, try to really reduce the spray and chemical into the vines. And it took a long time, but we've been doing that for eight years now. So Elizabeth and uh, Tony, the owners, they were all over that from the beginning then. They just let you go with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing with Tony and Elizabeth. Since the beginning, they were really um, listening to what we were trying to do and they let us do those kind of stuff pretty Where did you come up with the idea about using natural teas and herbals? So, in France, it's it's very used in Loire Valley, for example. There's a lot of organic areas that are very specified and very developed now for many years. So the techniques about those are really well established in France and much more well known in France as practice. So for me, it was the same thing. My uncle in Beaujolais used a lot of those techniques also. Very limitation of chemical spray and uh, more developing the vines in like the, the strength and, and immune system instead of targeting disease and things like that. So for me, that's how it came up. I did some more research, some stuff that I did in, in, uh, in during my study. I was always drawn to developing spray in a healthier way, something that brings the vines a good element and something that is not residual in the wines also, because when you do lots of chemical spray on the vines, you have residue in the wines no matter what. It is not really quantified to a level where it can be dangerous, but when you do residue chemical analysis on most of the wines, you have residual stuff in there that most of the people, they don't realize it's in there, but it's in there. So... For me, it was a little bit of bothering. I didn't want to go towards that thing. And especially in Virginia, where I saw lots of people using lots of chemicals, because once again, the weather is very challenging. I was like, well, let's try to make it work a little bit different. Do you, do you have any, speaking of that, do you have any hybrids planted in your vineyard at all? No. So we have no hybrids, only Vitis vinifera, uh, with some of uh, the pretty, uh, like uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, that are pretty sensitive. Uh, but other than that, uh, yeah, no, all Vitis vinifera. But it's been working good. Like I said, I think this technique, you can use it, but it doesn't happen from a day to another. You really have to start the process and for the vines even to adapt to that, it takes a few years. And it's not only, oh, I'm going to go spray teas and that's the way it is. It's also managing the vines, you know, like the, the trellis system and the airflow and the grass and herbicide, all of that just has the, the, an impact on the vine, so we really try to so be careful. have you, the acreage at Afton Mountain has doubled since you've been there? Mm-hmm. So you have about 24, 25 bearing acres? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but yeah. the farm is much larger than that. Yeah, the it? farm is about 140 acres, so we take care of everything else. Also the fields around, we have goats and things like that to make sure we can use... We don't have to mow everything. That's the thing. We do a lot of hay. We do a lot of different things to kind of preserve the land and, and put a good mark on it. You have a, a chicken farm up there? Is that accurate? For the past few years, we did some chicken, like a free a free range chicken, and we were butchering them and selling them to the testing room. Yeah, we did this is a real live farm. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're going we're gonna to... Take it easy on that now and just more focus on the vines. We tried a lot of different things, but it's just a lot of work and and we just uh, we focus on wine. And- I'm curious about what you've seen in your period here in Virginia over the last 15 plus years, the way of climate change. And one of the things, that, let me add this as well, 
when I talk about climate change, I'm not necessarily speaking about whether it's getting warmer or anything of that nature. I just see dramatic shifts in climate. What have you seen? Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. I think what we've seen in change without talking about is getting warmer or colder is just the intensity of the weather events that's really impacting us for the past few years where the frost are getting more frosty and for a longer period of time where during summer it's getting hotter and drier, but it can be also wetter and rainier. You see what I mean? All the weather effects, I think, for me, that's what I've seen are really just multiplied, like very drastically uh, changed. Like well, it seems to me, it seems to me everything is a wind of that. Mm-hmm. The wind just seems to be a constant element, yeah. no matter what. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that is, to me, the turbulence. So let's turn to your winemaking and what you do in the vineyard and then also how you handle the fruit mm-hmm. in the cellar itself. What are you doing that you like that you think produces the kind of results you're looking for? So for, for me, really producing, making wine come from the grapes. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, the most important thing. It's very hard to make a good wine when you don't take care of the grapes, and that's the primary thing. So most of the work we do is in the vineyard, to be honest. In the winery, we handle the fruit with a very minimal uh, impact and minimal addition and things like that. So uh, first is uh, trying to have a really... A terroir wine. So it's really trying to have the vines adapted to the area where we are in Afton and uh, we have a good airflow, we have a good topography, a little bit of slope, so we have advantage in that way where uh, that's a good point for us. So yes, so the fruit basically we try to not overproduce too much. We are not trying to get lo- lots of tonnage per acre here. We try to really get the good production for quality wine. So we are really at two, three tons per acre. I mean, okay. it's very low, but I think for me, that's when you really can get a lots of complexity, aromatic development and very nuance of, of the grapes that you grow, basically. Um, and once... So during the season, we spend a lot of time into the, the canopy, basically, trying to have good airflow. So because of the spray that we do, are very we, we don't do a lot of spray per right. year with a low chemical thing. We need to make sure the trellis system is really impeccable. That means uh, edging the rows, not having extra growth, do a nice job in leaf pulling. With that, we kind of diminish the chance to have disease development in the vineyard. Are there any of the original vines that were planted in 1978 still producing? So, yeah, we still have some Cabernet Sauvignon that's uh, been planted in 1978 that is still producing. And some year it's doing really great. Like this year, 2021, we're going to have a nice single varietal Cabernet Sauvignon with some of those vines in there. And some of the other time we use it for rosé. If, uh, if hard to tear out all vines, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, we, we had to remove two, two point five, ac- two acres almost of Cabernet Sauvignon to replant some Cabernet Franc. And same thing, when we replant, we we change a lot the way of planting. We do high density plantation compared to the other uh, way that the vines were planted. So much more plant per acre. Uh, the plants are much smaller. So this is to emphasize competition. The vines really like to develop competition. The vines like to struggle a little bit. Uh, it develops more uh, aromatic complexity, smaller fruit, 
more concentration. So in a way, that's why we do when we replant vineyards with much more higher density plantations, smaller vine density. Is there a particular varietal that you grow, that you produce a wine that you would call, okay, that's our signature wine? Not really, because we have lots of styles of wine that we try to develop. To be honest, like uh, our blends will be maybe the most representative of what we do, like the tradition blend, for example, because it's a little bit of three different varieties that we put in there. But for me, it's not uh, maybe the most representative. One wine that I really like right now that we changed the style in the past few years is Cabernet Franc. Cabernet Franc, we used to do barrel aging and, you know, like regular typical Cabernet Franc. But now we really switch to a more fruit-forward wine, so we don't do barrel aging anymore. We do concrete concrete tank fermentation and concrete tank aging. Very, uh, We press that very short of when fermentation is finished, so we don't try to extract a lot of tannin. We try to go more like fruit forward, easy wine to drink. And, and that's for me, for the past few years, we've been trying to develop this kind of wine. And 2021 is a good example of, of that. So Loire yeah. style. Loire Valley Cabernet Franc, definitely. Well, that, or like Beaujolais. Or a, a little bit like that, yeah. Definitely. I mean, I had one vendor here, Mike Henny, tell me that he looked at his Cabernet Franc as his his Pinot Noir, oh, yeah. his Gamay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, have you ever thought about planting any Gamay? Yeah, up there? I thought about it. The, the, I hear a lot of people say it's really hard, but it's the same thing. You have to have the good terroir, I think, and the good way to make it uh, grow because Gamay can be very sensitive to downy mildew, doesn't like too much the humidity, and so it, it's gonna have like Pinot Noir. It's it's a grape that you can grow, but you have to be really good at at, at the way to grow to really diminish the disease or things like that that can ruin Gamay because same thing. Gamay has a skin that's pretty thin, okay. so when you have a lots of rain, it can split easily. So Virginia weather can be challenging for Gamay, but I'm sure it's possible. How do you like to sum? 2017 Merceau. Yes, Merceau that we are drinking is pretty good. It's uh, it opened up now nicely. Mm. Yep, that's that's rock solid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you, the acidity, its baseline is really good, typical from that, and after lots of complexity of different things, I, I like it. I will tell you though, I think your Chardonnay is. One of the better examples of Virginia Chardonnay. Oh, okay. I've, my wife and I have enjoyed it Thank you. immensely over the years. Uh-huh. And when we visited, oh, not too long ago, last summer actually, it was like, oh, we got to get some of that, more of that Chardonnay. That wine is really quite good. Well, that's another example of wine that we changed with the years where before we used to do everything in barrel. And, and for me, the, the barrel, even when you use neutral barrel, we don't have the same terroir, you know, as Chablis or like, uh, you know, where they can retain so much acidity at harvest. For us, even like Chardonnay, to have a ripe Chardonnay, you don't have the same acidity or pH. So when you bring it to a barrel, you remove some of that, that vibrancy and you make more like round, toasty Chardonnay. But after, it's a question of style. But for me, it was not so much the style we wanted to go to, like this California Chardonnay thing. So... The barrel is good, but same thing, you have to know how to use it. So now with a 50% barrel and 50% stainless steel blend, we can retain some of the freshness, acidity that we ferment in stainless steel, develop the mouthfeel and the different aromatic perception that stainless steel has in barrel. And I think when you blend both, you have more complexity of the 
to kind of fermentation chardonnay. I, I'm curious about what interaction you have on any kind of regular basis with your customers that come to the tasting room, mm -hmm. come to the winery. Yeah. What kind of interaction do you have? So me, I, I, uh, the wine club members, I'm really involved with the wine club members. When we do events and things like that, I'm, I'm here all the time doing tasting. Well, I mean, for the past two years, we didn't do much, but we've right. been having those tasting starting this year back, actually, with wine club members where we, on Sundays, with three Sunday. We did some vertical tasting with Cabernet Sauvignon, Petit Verdot, and some of the Baco. So with like eight different vintage, and that was based on three different Sundays. But I do a lot of that with the wine club members. What's the blend of Baco? So Baco is Sangiovese, Tanat, and Petit Verdot. Oh, interesting. I got to try that bottle I have. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sangiovese? So you have Sangiovese? Yeah, we have a little bit of Sangiovese, yeah. How long has that been in the ground up there? Uh, well, actually, when I arrived, they already had some Sangiovese. I wonder if they had Gabrielli's hand on it. Yeah, definitely. That was <laughs> him that planted that. Uh, but after they, they've been replanting, just the year I arrived, they've replanted three other rows of Sangiovese. So the original Sangiovese, we, we took it out of the ground because same thing, Sangiovese, it was on a rootstock that was very giving a lot of vigor to the vines. Those vines were humongous, very wide, planting, very large. So they got tired very quickly. And Sangiovese can be a big cluster with big berries. And we had trouble to, to reach full maturity with these uh, grapes. So on a, it was inconsistent again. Mm -hmm. On a good year, it was doing good. But on a rainy year, it was just very average. So that's why we took it off. And the other clone and rootstock of Sangiovese that we have, with higher density plantation is performing much better. So we, we kept that one. Oh, okay. Well, that's, so what would you say, if you're looking forward, your biggest challenge is here with what you're doing at Afton Mountain right now? Well, the same thing is trying to push the envelopes into our organic methods a little bit and trying to find ways now for more like... Uh, I mean, this is why I think I have a pretty good ideas of like for downy mildew and botrytis and all of those things to to get a good control with plants the problem is uh japanese beetle for me is a big thing that i'm trying to now study for the past few years of how can we really get this population down there's not much we can do without spraying av insecticide mm -hmm. that is just not choosing to kill only uh, Japanese beetle, but everything else, and that's for me a problem. So we only spot spray here and there, but it it can be a big uh, can be a problem. So that's my thing right now, trying to find ways to control that. Um, but other than that, the big challenge is yeah, just trying to keep what we are trying to what we are doing year after year, and not knowing what year we're gonna have. So what kind of support? During this whole period with what you've been doing mm -hmm. for natural and organic and herbal remedies, what kind of support, if any, have you gotten from yeah. Virginia Tech and these types no, of places? Nothing here. Nobody's really looking into this? Nobody's really? looking into this. Huh. No. That's amazing to me. It's surprising to me, too, because the only data and things that I can find is friends, is in France. So I'm lucky that I can speak French and and look at all the, the research that they do, especially at the Agriculture Chamber in Loire Valley. They are really, really 
good and dedicated to that for lots of years. So there's lots of data and things that I inspire myself in there. But here, when I talk about the stuff that we do, I feel like it's not really, people are not really interested. Wow. Or it's too much work or they don't get it. Uh, but for me, when we started like, you know, early on to do like 15, 16 spray a year, and now we are only at six, seven spray where half of the spray are herbs and we don't have disease. I'm like, there is a way it's working here. Well, you so have the evidence. Yeah, you have evidence-based research yeah, that seems to be being ignored. Are you involved at all in the um, Virginia Winemakers Re Research Exchange? Yeah, so I was uh, involved when it started and, and follow that. I still follow and go to tastings and things like that. But same thing, the research that they do or they did was more about analogical product or like, oh, we use this tannin or we use that. So... Not so much vineyard trial. So it looks like they are starting to do that a little bit more. I got contacted not too long ago to be part of a trial for um, spraying some... That would be interesting. ...ketosan on the vines. Uh, that's something, an organic powder come out of clay that can disturb disease and things like that. So, yeah, I, I hope they'll be more developing those vineyard trials. Like this. That would make a lot of sense to yeah. really start to do research on wines being made that have organic, mm -hmm. natural practices in the vineyard, yeah. and those that are, have the traditional herbicides, that would be right, right. over some time. And the thing is, like, for what we use, you, you don't have to be drastic and be like, oh, we are 100% organic and we do only herbal teas and things. No, we use a systemic at flowering, you know, I, use, I still have some product that I use, so... But the thing is the reduction of spray where for me, here I, and I've seen that in Virginia a lot when, you know, people take their spray schedule from last year and do exactly the same thing. Oh, it's because I have to do my tree anti-botrytis. I have to do my, my systemic anti, anti downy mildew. And when, when you spend enough time in one vineyard and one area, that's the thing you can really have an effect on because you know your vineyard, you know the effect of the weather that's going to be on that. So, for us, with time and being there, I think we, we diminish that really uh, chemical spray mm -hmm. by doing other things, but just by also knowing and, and just looking at the weather and the vines. If it's flowering and the weather is nice and there is no a lot of uh, pressure of disease, we are not going to do the same spray as we did if it was a rainy year or something. So I think this really plays into what we are doing. For sure. So you're basically... Paying attention as opposed to just doing it on schedule. Yeah, completely, completely. Yeah. Well, that's so. I'm curious about something because I'm also a big fan of well-made Chambersin, uh -huh. and that's about as close to Beaujolais as I yeah. get here. Have yeah. you ever experimented with any Chambersin yeah, so yourself? All those vineyards when I arrived, they had Chambersin. So I worked five years with Chambersin over there, and it was one of the hybrids I loved working with. I have to say, because of the aromatic development that you can get very fruity, very light, if you want to work it that way. And I really loved Chambosin, I have to say. It was great to work with. Yeah. We plant some up there. <laughs> or, or buy some and make some, right? right? right. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I was talking to Tony Wolf and interviewing him, and I asked him this question about hybrids, he said to me, he said, listen, I believe that what will be growing in... 20, 30 years from now, maybe varietals we don't even know of today because of all the different hybridization that seems to be going on in different parts of the world yeah. trying to 
keep the vinifera, and yet cut the disease-prone. Have you experimented with anything like that? Uh, I mean, I've read and, and, and heard lots of those Merlot-resistant clones, or those even Vitis vinifera, now that they breed to be resistant, to mm-hmm. have resistant genome on, on a certain type of disease. So I think the material, the vegetal material that's been developed right now in Vitis vinifera or in hybrid is definitely prone for less disease naturally. But I think like is it because what we are doing now I think is a way you can work it. It doesn't have to be drastic of like oh Vitis vinifera it's overrated. We're gonna go with variety that are more <laughs> resistant because if once again if you pay attention to what you're doing and put the good care in there, I mean we don't have this is crazy. Even in 2018, when it was really rainy, we had maybe a few more spray, but it was not an explosion of disease that it was not uncontrollable. In 18, we did some really decent reds. That was a different style of red, maybe, because 18 was a bad year, you know, rainy and harvest was terrible. Lots of people didn't make any reds. But same thing after, it's an adaptation. So I think it's... For people that want to go in a business that uh, that want to to be like uh, less stress free, they're gonna plant hybrids and things that are easy to take care of. The only problem for me is like after the quality of the wine, we are not sure of really what how it's gonna go. Like we don't have enough background yet. So I well, you you also you you have elevation, so that mm-hmm. certainly helps mitigate That's some of these issues, doesn't definitely, it? Definitely, as you get, get up there. So. The one question I like to ask every vintner, and this will be intriguing to me because you grew up with wine as a kid and in wine culture. At what point, what was that one wine you had at whatever stage of your life when you said, wow, that really is ethereal, that's the kind of wine I want to aspire to make? Was there one wine at one point? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's the Beaujolais village of my family, you know, that's the first one I started drinking when I was like six years old, basically, with a, I had a little glass of wine with cheese at the end of dinner, <laughs> and as year goes, you have a little bit more, and uh, you try to understand it more, and for me, I think there's one one uh, event that I can recall, it was a family dinner, and we had a Beaujolais, and I was probably eight or nine years old. So I knew I, I kind of really wanted to do that. And because my family knew that, they were really, like my grandfather, every time there was a problem on the wine or a corked wine or something, he was the first, he was giving that to me for me to be like, oh, is he going to see if it's corked or is he going to... So that, that, I think this event on the Beaujolais village where he opened it, he didn't say nothing, and he, he gave me the bottle and the cork. And right away I said, like, this thing smells like cork a little bit. And and after my grandfather was like, yeah, that's right, that was the thing you needed to smell, and that's why I gave it to you. And from now, and from that stage, I, I was really drawn by that. So I felt that was the, the thing that marked me was the exchange with my grandfather of this. And after, like, every, every year after that, I, I, I was just asking more questions, doing more things. To, to be, I was really just interested by that. I know you didn't grow up or spend time, obviously, in the northern part of Beaujolais, but I'd be curious, what is your favorite crew of the 10 crew? Crew, well, 
Do you I, have one? Yeah, I like Brouillé, Moulin Avant. I mean, I like, but Brouillé and Moulin Avant will be my two favorite because they are the one closest, I think, that's the one I, I know the more. Uh, Mont Brouillé, just by the, the topography of Brouillé, it's just a little mountain in the middle of nowhere with the, so you have some re, some blocks over there. I tried some wine from specific block on, that was just amazing because you know exactly where I come from and compared to one mile away from the same vineyard and same variety that's going to be really different. Montbrouillet, for me, it's one of the ones that can have a drastic change. It's not maybe the most famous one, but it's one of the ones that I, I like. Is it accurate for me to say that as you come from the northern part of Beaujolais, mm -hmm. down further to the south, the granite becomes less and less red and pink and more and more yeah. grayish, yeah. and then it sort of turns into more typical soil and less granite. Yeah, after that, you, you, yeah, on, on the plain, on like on the, how do you say that? Uh, not on the hilly part, it's right. a little bit more like that. And that's why they are Beaujolais and the Beaujolais village. So the Beaujolais village is just the one that are not the crew, but still a lot of granitic soil and it's not flat. There is no one part of Beaujolais village. From my uncle, at least, that is flat. So, so this uh, gift you brought me today, which I'm going to treasure, he brought mm -hmm. me a couple bottles of his family's Beaujolais. Yeah. Do you sell this at the winery? Yeah, we sell that at the winery now. So so the one you have here with Delire en Beaujolais, that's the name we gave to the wine once we took over with my cousin. When my when my uncle retired, it was Domaine du Four à Bois. And we just changed the name and did something different uh, with my cousin. And... Now we bring that here and sell it through the testing room. And I, I can't thank you enough. I just love Beaujolais. Have all my career. Yeah, it's to me, it's the most food friendly red wine you can possibly yeah, serve agree. a crowd. Yeah, and, and it goes with everything. That's the thing. It's Beaujolais for me. I will drink that with grilled fish, with uh, meat, but everything. It's just uh, I don't know. It's I'm I'm very biased on that because that's the kind of wine I grew upon and I I have a very definite passion for that. But it's a wine yeah you can you can drink with everything and and it's just the stylistic wine that for me I really like like good aromatic red fruit not too heavy into the tannin and the barrel you don't have so much of that it's really a natural wine and especially this way. We are like old school fermentation and old school like uh, aging no barrel. Very, very easy. Well, and I also think, from my experience, as limited as it is, Beaujolais ages a whole lot better than most people even think. Yeah, completely. That is something that people say, yeah, you cannot keep a bottle of Beaujolais, but we've tried with my family, we've tried some stuff, like very dusty bottle from like 74, 76, I recall that. Last time I was in France for Christmas, that's what we've been, we drink, and it was, it was good. <laughs> like it was really good, so yeah. <laughs> that's the key, isn't it? That yeah. the wine gets better and more interesting. Yeah, that's the... well. Virginia is lucky that you came here. And it's um, to me, Virginia again represents the most exciting wine growing region in America today. Mm -hmm. There's no question in my mind about it. The diversity here has been fascinating, and I always tell people who don't know anything about. Virginia wine growing, people in the trade. I say, you have to think about Virginia like you would about France or even Italy. For instance, they don't grow Pinot Noir in Bordeaux, and they don't grow Cabernet Sauvignon in Burgundy. Yeah. 
And we have that same kind of diversity here in Virginia. Just certain varietals do much better in certain parts of the state. It's it's really fascinating to see that. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's true. I mean, for me, that's the thing I've seen when I arrived here 15 years ago. It's uh, really the diversity of of uh, the winemaking, the varieties, the possibilities in Virginia. That's what drawn me to stay here too. Like when I was in when in France in an area, you can only make one type of wine, or it's very regulated. But the thing in Virginia, and I think that's why we came a long way for the past 15 years, is Lots of people tried lots of things, lots of different variety, lots of different winemaking style, and we are all trying to help each other for the right to go in the right direction. So, I mean, I, I was glad to be here in Virginia when I arrived here. I didn't even know they were making wine here, and now I will not <laughs> see myself making wine somewhere else. Where I think I really am a true Virginia winemaker, even if I'm French. The knowledge and, and the responsibility that I when I came here, I didn't have that in France. Like uh, to really start from A to Z without anybody telling you what to do, or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I can I can say I'm a true Virginia winemaker because that's that's where I experienced most of my years of making wine here. That's fascinating because I had one owner talk to me about his winemaker and he said the same thing about his winemaker. He said he's a Virginia winemaker, and I met. Well, what do you mean by that? And he goes, well, the diversity here and the change every year in the harvest. Mm-hmm. You really have to be yeah. on your toes. You got to be nimble, yeah. and you have to adapt and really find a way to make really high quality wine, no matter what the circumstances. And that's what a Virginia winemaker yeah. has to do, isn't it? And it's I think if you if you're really good or if you understand how to make wine in Virginia and how to grow grapes, it leaves you a door open to do that in a lots of area in the world. Because I feel for me like Virginia is one of the most challenging area to make wine in the world. Period. When you go in, you know, South America, the weather is pretty dry and hot, it's good. You go in California, it's okay. I mean, even in France can be challenging. The weather in their region is pretty standard. Here, we see a lot of variation that I don't think we have, like, you know, with the soil and the weather, and it makes it very challenging. Like, when you have very high soil with uh, lots of vigor, you know, clay soil that we have here with humidity all the time, even if it's 100 degrees, you have 50% humidity mm-hmm. in the morning, always like dew points, and even if it's a drought, everything is green. You see what I mean? It's a, it's a thing that we don't see every everywhere else, and for the vines, I feel like, yeah, you have to be on top of it to make sure from a year to another you can do right things. Man, I feel your passion. <laughs> and I share it about Virginia wine. I share it. I just, yeah. to me, it's just got all the elements, modest alcohol with good acidity, but a lot more. Well, as I tell people, Virginia wine has what I call soul. Mm-hmm. I it, it still has soul. There's a sense of place yeah. in most of the wines you have from Virginia that seems to have been lost in a lot of the New World winemaking areas mm-hmm. where there's a recipe. Yeah. Oh man. And yeah. a lot of it includes very high alcohol yeah. and a lot of extract. Yeah, yeah. Here, you just define everything that I'm trying not to do. You know, like for me, uh, wine and in general is such a old uh, trade that people have been doing for centuries. And uh, it's not like I'm trying to do the same things they were doing 100 years ago, but really, a wine for me is really 
you, we are farmers first, so you grow the grapes the best way you can and try to translate that into a bottle with keeping the same characteristic of where the grapes are growing. So terroir wine, we talk about terroir, this is really 100% what we are trying to do. So even within the winemaking, we have very low extraction, you know, very low barrel, no tannin addition, no acidification. We really try to try to stay true to the old school way. And sometimes it's not easy because we restrain ourselves or be like, oh, it's a bad year, but I don't want to use tannin or I don't want to use enologic product to make it better. Because after that's where you get wine from a year to another that's kind of more standard. A recipe, I'm all against recipe. From When I start a new season, for me, what I did last year is kind of, I forget about it. I mm-hmm. was like, let's see how it's going to be this year and not be like, oh, I did that, it's going to work again or something like that. So, yeah. Well, Damien, this has been fascinating. Give me your final comments on this uh, glass of Merceau we have glass of Merceau, but I'm going to finish my glass. And it's yeah. going to be great. No, it's good. It's been great. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's delicious. If there is one more thing I would say for me... Please. Because, I mean, you're really involved with lots of people that even start vineyard, or you see a lot. So, you know, the development, I think, for me, for the next couple of years or even the next 10 years in Virginia, I love that there is more winery developing. But what I'm afraid of is the kind of, like, you know, the big winery and people don't pay attention too much of, like, the grape growing. You know, we, we talk about the specificities of it's really tough to make a good job here. So if you start a big thing without having the knowledge of the people that can really steer you in a good direction, it's going to be trouble. And that's why, like, either there's lots of people that do much more good things now with the knowledge that we have around. But I don't want to see that developing into only economic business where people develop, like, big wineries just to showcase or to have events or things like that. So we... There is, I think, the two different schools that I see happening where you're going to have small craft wine developing and like what we are doing now and the other one that's more like events because wine has a lot of attraction touristically now in Virginia, something that we didn't have 10 years ago. Well, I would love to see somebody come in here and have some significant development of vineyard, but to your point, focus on quality wine growing. Yeah. Because that's what Virginia needs. It needs yeah, exactly. more yeah. quality grapes yeah, yeah. for it to grow. Yeah. We don't need any more hospitality. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's my point. I wanted to say it's like grape growing is so important. And that's what determines basically the, the success of a wine industry, you know, because if you keep on just growing grapes, but you just are here to make tonnage or to sell your grapes to somebody so you don't really pay attention to the quality, that can, can be damaging in a, big way at some point if you start to produce a lot of things and uh, so but people know where to go and what to what to look for I think well it's fascinating well again <laughs> yeah. Damien thank you very much well, thanks, this has been a delight That's and uh, thanks for the gift of Beaujolais my wife and I are going to really enjoy that well what a fascinating interview with Damien His ideas about wine growing have their roots clearly in the old world, but yet have a new world innovative approach to them. It was very surprising to find that no horticultural organization has even explored with him his techniques and looks at the results he is achieving in the vineyard. It would seem to me to be a perfect case study 
to understand if his methods could significantly improve sustainable farming practices and overall wine quality. Any university that is listening out there should contact Afton Mountain Vineyards. In my next episode, I'm excited to share my interview with what I believe is one of the young, upcoming winemaking stars here in Virginia, Chelsea Blevins from 53rd Winery located in Louisa. I recently discovered this winery. It had been purchased by David and Susan Drillick in 2015, having been originally the Cooper Vineyard. Their wines are very exciting and refreshing at the same time, and a very good blend of wines made from both hybrids and vinifera. You'll want to learn about 53rd Winery in Chelsea, because I'm sure you will hear about them for years to come. As always, thanks for being a listener, and if you have any comments or questions, please send them to me at fred at finewineconfidential.com. See you on the other side. Music at Fine Wine Confidential Podcast by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com from his copyrighted song, Acoustic Shuffle, under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. I hope you enjoyed the show.